episode 655 with Ms. Claire Lopez, the first Claire Lopez episode of 2022. We were just talking about the episode I did yesterday with uh, Dr. Matthias Desmet, Dr. Robert Malone, and Dr. Peter McCullough. And I was saving this for when we started recording. That was indirectly thanks to you. I was, I had just finished the Malone episode. I was visiting my brother. I was in a hotel in Austin and I was just kind of laying there scrolling through Twitter, which I never do. I never keep any social media apps on my phone. I delete them every day and then I download them to post the podcast and delete them again. I, for my own mental health. But I was just kind of scrolling through, breaking my own rules. And I had seen the, you know, the, the hashtag mass formation psychosis, which was on all the platforms. And I saw a tweet from none other than the great Claire Lopez and you said uh, you you had responded to someone and you were like, why don't you, you know, give the guy credit or something along the lines of like, you know, call him who oh. call him by his name. It was just sort of like a, by the way. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I know what it was. It had to do uh, with Dr. Robert Malone's interview uh, recently within the past, what, about a week, I think, um, with Joe Rogan mm-hmm. on his podcast. It was more than three hours. It, yeah. it was a long interview and worth every single minute of it, worth its weight in gold. And um, they used the term on that show, Robert Malone did, uh, mass formation psychosis. Um, apparently, uh, you know, um, Matthias Desmet prefers to just call it mass formation. Mm-hmm. And he explained uh, in your show that he doesn't want to get into using sort of medical terminology that psychosis would, um, you know, bring up. Mm -hmm. But in any case, so um, somehow because Dr. Robert Malone has been deplatformed, has been suspended, banned Mm -hmm. from Twitter after that Joe Rogan show. He was was, um, was banned before the the Rogan show. Before it even, before it even. Okay, he's banned, he's off. Um, and, And people were trying to look it up. And, and so I tweeted and I said, well, just look up Matthias Desmet because he's the one that kind of originated uh, the term mass formation. Although I find now that it even goes back farther than him. But he's the one, let's say, that popularized sure. it. And, and, and so that, that's what you were looking at on your tweet feed. So I saw that. And I'm not going to lie. I thought, I thought Matthias. So I, like, I got the name. And I was like, oh, cool. So I just Googled it to look up more. I thought it was like a Sigmund Freud guy. Like I thought he'd been dead for like a century. I just thought that this was this old thing. So I just Googled it and I was like Matthias Desmet. And it was like full professor at the University of Ghent. And I was like, huh? And like the wheel started turning and I like went to the website and like, sure enough, there was his like contact email. And I was like, no way. And so like I sent him an email and I was like, I'm sure this guy's getting contacted by everyone. And he emailed me back in like five minutes. And I was like, wow. I was like, yeah, I'd wow. love for you to come on. And then I was like, well, I was like, what if I maybe I could maybe get Malone or McCullough? Like, I can't guarantee anything, but I was like, I've had him on before. Would you want to talk to them? And he was like, oh, sure, I'd be honored. And this thing started to kind of fall in place. And I didn't get in touch with Malone until like 45 minutes before the podcast. And oh he was like, yeah, like, yeah, I'll do it. And so this whole thing kind of culminated and, and came through. But no, I was telling my friend David that last night. I was like, no, it's, it's, it's actually responsible to the great Claire Lopez that you had tweeted the name. And I looked up the name. That's what led to yesterday's podcast. So I do have wow. to give you credit in the fine print. Absolutely. And and as I was telling you before we came on air here today, I have just begun watching that podcast that you did yesterday. And I, I've got 
about halfway to go. I, uh, I made it around halfway through before our time began here. But uh, I'm really looking forward to finishing it. And it is a terrific interview for anybody who's not seen it yet. Go look this thing up. Um, it is the three of them. Well, four with you, Tommy. But the, the three, Matthias Desmet and Dr. Uh, Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough. Fabulous interview from what I've seen so far. Yeah, they really were incredible together. It was it was insane. I, I can't believe it happened. Um, but so with that, and as you asked, what are we going to talk about? And as my answer always is, is, I have no idea. So what are the kind of the biggest things going on right now? What, is it still Ukraine? Is it is it is it what is it? What, what, what do you think is the sort of the biggest thing kind of moving around? Uh, well, right now? You know, I mean, there, there, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, at the beginning of the new year, um, after people have taken breaks off for maybe even you know a couple of weeks of the holidays, everybody's all back at it again, right? And so, obviously, um, with tomorrow being January the sixth, oh, yeah. uh, the one year anniversary of um, the rowdy conduct at the Capitol building one year ago, there's that, and hearings going on uh, up on Capitol Hill. And of course, yeah, um, Russia still maintains tens of thousands of troops on, on the Ukraine border. I think we talked about that, you and I, the last time we were together back in December. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the entire um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic and, 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 you know, now the emergence of this new variant called Omicron, according to the Greek alphabet. Um, and uh, thankfully, it looks that this strain is um, way more contagious than anything that's preceded it, um, but also a whole lot less uh, deadly, less less uh, lethality in terms of deaths or even in, in, in terms of hospitalizations. Um, much, much less severe um, with symptoms. Um, many people barely notice anything at all. Others may notice something that feels like a cold, the sniffles. Um, some body aches, perhaps that sort of thing. So, um, I mean, grab bag, take your pick, but all that's going on. Do you think, and, and this is kind of, I guess, outside of the grab bag, because I was walking through the airport the other day and, you know, saw on the news and I think it was, it was a statement from Biden saying, you know, uh, you know, like the U.S. will respond with force if, if Russia advances further into Ukraine. Do you think that we're, and again, this is all wild speculation, not that you have the answer, is is the response to Ukraine also a, it's kind of like, it's kind of like that sort of running theory some people have that the, one of the reasons we dropped the A-bomb was it wasn't just for Japan, it was so the Soviet Union saw what we had. Do you think that uh, a heavy U.S. military response in defense of Ukraine is also sort of a... Uh, practicing what we preach knowing that really we have this this oddly kind of identical thing right next door where it's china and taiwan is is our defense of ukraine sort of like a hey china like check it out do you think that will be what it is um i, I think that uh, an outright u.s military response should be taken completely off the table okay um i think that would be exactly the wrong uh, course of action um, I've been doing a lot of research on, on the Ukraine-Russia situation just for other interviews and such. Um, but I'll tell you a couple of um, places that really influenced me. Um, one was an interview 
um, with a Russian by the name of Andrei Ilarionov. Uh, Ilarionov uh, formerly was a very close aide uh, to Vladimir Putin, the, the president of Russia. But back around 2006, he broke away from Putin, um, don't know exactly the circumstances, but came to the United States, became a, a fellow at the Cato Institute for a long time, just until the end of last year, 2021. And now he's a fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Well, watching um, an interview that he did recently with Robert Riley uh, at the Westminster Institute, and this is, I think it's on YouTube online, a really excellent long, long form interview. Ilarionov uh, makes the point that, of course, he knows Putin very well. And he believes that uh, Putin is trying to achieve through information operations, in other words, threatening, you know, a mass buildup of Russian troops on the Ukraine border, troops and tanks and artillery and what have you, um, you know, threatening visibly, using um, media, including social media, uh, propaganda, um, etc., uh, that, that he is seeking, he, Putin, is seeking to gain concessions uh, short of outright military invasion of Ukraine proper by Russian troops uh, to obtain that which he cannot obtain or has not been able to attain so far in discussions, nor, per Ilyanov, nor would he be able to actually succeed with an all-out invasion of Ukraine. Not only would the entire Ukrainian army, um, you know, rise up to, to, to fight tooth and nail to, to, to uh, oppose, to counter a Russian invasion of their country, but you would see guerrilla units, yeah. um, you know, informal uh, military militias um, all over the country. Um, Russia would not win. Russia would not be able to do that. It cannot bite off all of Ukraine through military, sheer raw power military force and succeed, is his point, Iladionov's point. Uh, the other points that he made were that uh, Putin, well, Russia right now is economically very weak. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not in a strong position, economically speaking. Uh, also not in a strong position, speaking demographically. Um, now that's longer term. That's that's not quite immediate, but um, the Russian uh, birth rate is in a demographic death spiral, numbering about one point, I don't know, three or something, maybe four, five uh, children per woman per lifetime. When of course two point one is replacement level. So there's that. Um, and the other place that I took a lot of, um, I did a lot of research with, and and, and took a lot of um, points from is the Institute for the Study of War. Excellent outfit, excellent um, uh, set of um, experts uh, on, on war in general, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a discipline, as a study of a discipline, but also then of specific places, hotspots, if you will, around the world, and of course, now, you know, uh, Ukraine and Russia. And um, their analysis at ISW was very similar to that of Andrei Ilarionov. And that being that um, Putin cannot afford in, in, in different ways, uh, economically, militarily, 
diplomatically um, to be seen to attempt an all-out invasion. And we're not talking about just those eastern regions, sometimes called the Donbass, region of Donetsk and Luhansk. Not just talking about those which already have separatists all over, but, but meaning an all-out invasion of, you know, Ukraine proper, the rest of, of the, which is huge, rest of the country, and, and you know, targeting major cities, Nevrpetrovsk, Kiev, and, and, and so forth, that he would not be able to do that successfully. And then not only would he be losing militarily, he Putin, losing militarily, but then he would have given up any hope of achieving his objectives through other means, like I've mentioned, diplomatic information operations and so forth. Um, but seeing weakness in Washington, D.C., in the White House, and, and the entire Biden administration, really, has uh, many of us think emboldened Putin. Now, Putin had um, private uh, phone conversations, I guess video phone conversations with President Biden on both December 7th and December 30th, just a few days ago. And um, the threats that President Biden made were along the lines of, if you step one foot further, we're going to enforce more sanctions. They're going to be really, really, really hard sanctions. Um, you know, does Putin take that uh, seriously or not? Uh, open to question. Um, but just the last couple of points. Um, Ukraine is not a member of, of NATO. Um, it wants to be. And this is one of Russia's red lines that neither Ukraine or any more of those former, um, you know, behind the Iron Curtain Eastern European countries, that none of them anymore that already are, um, you know, join uh, NATO. Obviously, places like Romania and Bulgaria already have, um, but no more, and certainly not Ukraine. Um, Putin has set forth a number of demands, um, among them that, um, but then also that, um, uh, you know, that, that the West refrain, NATO refrain, U.S. refrain um, from uh, positioning heavy weapons um, or providing heavy, heavy weapons to Ukraine to include things like anti-tank missiles, for example. Um, there was uh, a, an agreement, or actually it was a couple of agreements kind of rolled into one called the Minsk Agreements. And that was 2014-15. The 2015 one is 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 the you know the, the final one, and 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 in that uh, agreement, which was uh, signed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, um, the Russians set forth a number of conditions. Those I just mentioned. Uh, they were also going to do things like uh, a um, a prisoner exchange, obviously a ceasefire, um, which. It, it practically immediately fell apart, um, and also to involve the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, in uh, multi um, uh, multi party talks um, to to relieve tensions, et cetera, et cetera, and to have OSCE monitors on the ground uh, inside of Ukraine and in the eastern regions, the Donbas, the, the Donetsk and Luhansk um, parts of Ukraine. A lot of that fell very quickly by the wayside. But in any case, um, those two sources, Andrei Ilarionov and then um, the, um, the people at uh, 
uh, the Institute for the Study of War, really influenced by thinking on this. And that's that's kind of what they what they said. To go back to what you were saying at the beginning, what is it exactly that Russia is doing different and, and why are they doing it? Is it I, I get what you're saying. You know, you can't invade. It's going to be guerrilla as Russia saw in Afghanistan in the 70s, as we just saw for 20 years in the Middle East and Vietnam. You really you can't win. You, in, no, in no meaningful sense can you win guerrilla warfare. You'd have to use thermonuclear and then the whole, what, what do you gain is. So I get that. And I also get the sort of you also don't want to go for it if you don't think you can get it because nothing makes you look weaker than that. What what is it exactly that they are doing differently? Is it just it's using every other avenue to to uh-huh. and and how is that different than isn't that kind of the norm now anyway? Isn't that what China's doing well, to us? Aren't we doing that? It's Yeah. So so what, what what Putin is doing and he's way more sophisticated and better at it, the Russians are collectively, uh, than the United States or the West is this area of information warfare and hybrid warfare, too, if you want to include that. But but in terms of information warfare, what he seeks to gain um, by what some would paint as posturing um, are concessions to do with lifting of sanctions that already are imposed against Russia, um, a pledge, as I've mentioned, not to ever allow Ukraine to become a member of NATO. I mean, NATO's not buying that, but but one solution could be, well, it's going to take a long time before any kind of discussions could ever be held and kind of give Russia a face-saving way out without committing to never allow it. Or what's it, to, you know, to, uh, to allow uh, Ukraine uh, ever to become a member of NATO which it wants to, but NATO very likely will not allow that. Um, so, so um, you know, to, to uh, gain that kind of a concession out of NATO, a flat statement, which will not be forthcoming, but there could be some kind of a, a middle ground there. Um, and then, of course, we haven't mentioned, um, but the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, right? So for a very long time under the Trump administration here in the U.S., um, United States government policy was to oppose the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which, um, as it is now built and it is completed under the Biden administration, which removed sanctions against that completion, um, the route of of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline bypasses Ukraine. Formerly, there had been a proposed route that would have gone through Ukraine and from there on to Germany and, and, and Western Europe. And, you know, which I think we've mentioned this previously, which sort of geographically speaking, it, it makes sense that oil and gas rich Russia, Russia would provide energy needs to Europe, Eastern and Western. Um, but given the leverage that arrangement provides to Moscow, there's serious um, hesitation about it. And, and that's why the Trump administration uh, worked so hard when, by the way, Rick Grinnell uh, was ambassador to Germany. And for a long time, they held onto those sanctions against um, the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Well, it is now completed, and the route takes it actually 
um, around Ukraine, and I'm looking at a little map I've got here for myself uh, on some notes that I made. Um, where did I put it? Um, must be in this one. The, there it is. Yeah. So um, the route runs um, from uh, from 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 Western Russia uh, underwater, actually, through the North Sea, uh, past uh, the Baltic Sea. Uh, uh, maybe I should say the Baltic Sea, but past uh, the Scandinavian countries, then then arching downwards to connect finally. Uh, to northern Germany, and that's where the endpoint now is, and for distribution from there on. Um, and so, of course, uh, some of the things that that Putin and Russia wanted from from talks uh, with with the United States would be uh, what we've already granted, which is a lifting of sanctions against the completion of of this pipeline. Now, here's the thing: um, in Germany, there's a long process before. Uh, the pipeline can actually be, uh, what would you say, approved and opened for business. Um, it's it's built, it's completed in that sense. Um, but there there's a lot of um, sort of red tape, I guess you might say, in Germany, which now has a new chancellor, by the way, Olaf Scholz, um, to to um, actually make it operational, right? So uh, they're saying that uh, this will they the Germans are saying this will not happen. Um, in the first half of this year, 2022, it's just not going to happen. Um, and so, so Putin is, of course, wanting to pressure that to go faster. He wants it open naturally. Uh, he wants that 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 leverage that this will afford him against Western Europe, Germany, and the others, um, cutting Ukraine out of it. Um, you know is. Is, is an objective he's already achieved, um, inserting himself, Putin, into these discussions in the first place is an achievement of information operations. Um, so all of these things are, are, are part of his sort of toolbox that he's using right now. And then, of course, the, the, um, you know, the visible pressure of those Tens of thousands, not quite sure how many. I've heard the Ukrainians say 94,000. Other sources say up to 175,000, but maybe he's withdrawn 10,000 of those recently. Not quite sure, but it's tens of thousands, uh, you know, plus tanks and artillery and, and other uh, military equipment on the border with Ukraine. So all of that taken together is how Putin is trying to shape the narrative, shape the discussions and shape things to his benefit. What does he want? He wants to reestablish the influence and power of Russia over its, I guess you'd call it near abroad, um, over those independent countries now that used to be behind the Iron Curtain under Russia's thumb, under Moscow's thumb. He knows that he cannot reconstruct the Soviet Union. That won't happen. But if he can peel off one and another, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, um, you know, to bring those, those, those governments under Russian pressure so much that they exceed um, essentially to, to Russian demands on any, any number of things, that's what he wants to do. And at the same time, and, and necessary to achieve that objective is, of course, to 
um, to keep NATO and the West from, as he would call it or think of it, encroaching any further eastward towards the boundaries, the, the borders with Russia. Why would the United, that was brilliant, why would the United States put sanctions against the oil pipe? Is that just kind of every nation goes at each other in any way you can? You try to get your own little... No, land? no, it's 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 because um, certainly in the Trump administration and, and with the, the superb uh, Rick Rennell as ambassador to Germany, um, it was understood that the completion of that pipeline on that route around and bypassing Ukraine um, would very firmly uh, put the consumers in Western Europe um, under uh, potential threat gotcha. from, from Russia. Um, and that any time in the midst of brutally Just cold winter months, turn it off. they can turn the taps off or down or whatever, right? Um, that's why. Because we, we recognize, we, the United States government under the Trump administration, recognized the leverage that that pipeline is intended, I mean, from the get-go, intended um, to, to, to uh, put up against Western Europe, our yeah. NATO allies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a heroin dealer, right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're trying to suck them in. It's kind of ironic that we, you know, we, we set out the importance of that and the danger of being dependent on a potentially enemy nation and now we're not energy independent at all. And we are a bit, it's some irony in there. Um, so could it be that, that all of this posturing, it, it kind of seems like it might just settle into posturing in perpetuity because the U.S. We don't want to use military. Russia, clearly, as you were saying, they don't want to. And not only that, if there is no military action, then we're not going to see any reason to have Ukraine join NATO. I think we talked about that last time. Like, could this, you know, for Ukraine's own benefit, they're looking out for themselves. They might be going, hey, we have to join you. It's kind of a, except for the Ukraine, but it's kind of a, a like a win-win-win. We don't want to use force. Russia doesn't want to use force. And then that way we won't have to let Ukraine mm. into NATO. And that way Russia won't have their red line crossed. Are it we, could be a way out, a, a kind of a face-saving way out a, for all of the above. It's a stale. It's a stalemate where we're all. Yeah, kind it's of not ideal. At, yeah, but it's better than a hot war invasion yeah. by tens of thousands of Russian troops. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like if that happened in, in my armchair general, right, all my military education, uh, my non-existent West Point education, but I feel like the iron's hot. That's when China would move to Taiwan. Or is the U.S. Do we truly have a big enough force projection that we could that we could well, still defend Taiwan? Or is that is that waning? Here, here, here is another place: um, the Republic of of uh, China, Taiwan, where uh, neither the United States nor any of our allies in that region of of uh, East Asia, India, Japan, Australia. I'm naming them because we and they are all members of the Quad. We don't have a defense treaty um, with Taiwan, with Taipei. We have uh, different documents um, that make a commitment of the United States 
to an independent government, uh, you know, a, a free and democratic style government in, in Taiwan. Um, but we don't have a formal treaty obligation. So what we've done instead, we, the United States, um, we know now from, from media reporting that the United States has U.S. military there in Taiwan training Taiwanese military. We have sold Taiwan a range of defensive weaponry. And very recently, uh, really over the last, I guess, several months, we've heard a number of statements from the top uh, levels of the Japanese government, including their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, to the effect that were uh, Beijing to, to launch uh, an all-out military assault attack against Taiwan, uh, that Japan ought to and would consider it in their national security interest uh, to intervene and try to help defend Taiwan. So bottom line, I think, for all of this is that we there um, in, in, in East Asia also want a firm deterrence policy to avoid a hot war invasion. Um, but it's treading a bit of a fine line. The United States government is not going to recognize um, the Taiwanese government as independent of China and an independent nation uh, in its own right. Um, one China, uh, how does that go? One China, two, two uh, governments? One China, two something. Um, but if that can be extended, um, while putting up enough of a deterrence against China, that's probably what the policy should be. That's probably what we're aiming for. And here again, uh, you've got a situation where uh, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, um, probably does not have uh, the military or economic wherewithal to just swallow uh, Taiwan and just take it over. Yes, they could launch a very serious uh, offensive against the island or against some of its outlying islands. There are many small islands in and around the area. And here's where Japan comes in, because uh, some of those nearby islands um, are claimed by Japan. But so they could launch against all of that, any of that, part of that. Um, but the resistance uh, or the, the, that they would meet um, we want to make it obvious. We want to make it clear that the, the resistance that the CCP would meet would be overwhelming um, and maybe just not worth it, not worth the effort. But again, to sort of perpetuate this um, status quo uh, that, 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 that doesn't, uh, recognize Taiwan as an independent country, uh, but yet it has an independent government system independent of Beijing. Well, sort of. Um, so that's, you know, that, that that's probably where we are. China, of course, has all kinds of internal tumult going on right mm -hmm. now within the Chinese Communist Party, its economy, um, and so forth. 
demographics. We could talk about that as well. We, we talked about the demographics in Russia. Well, you think that's bad. Uh, Chinese, uh, the Chinese population could be drastically reduced. I've heard estimates as much as halved by 2065-2070. And again, that goes back to, to the CCP's own policy of decades, a couple decades anyway, or more, of the one-child policy, which left literally tens of millions of young men, young Chinese men, who will never have a girlfriend, much less a wife or a family. Uh, it's a very bad situation. They call them bare branches because they'll never have children. Um, and other things, you know, just make a mess out of it, including human trafficking uh, of women into the country. It's, it's, they've made a mess for themselves, but it's their own doing. And that's why the population um, will, will crash um, in the very near future. I mean, within decades, not right now, not immediately. But, and there could be a lot of trouble between now and then, but it, it is crashing. So for all of those reasons, um, we need to make it clear that it's not in the CCP's best interest, nor she's, Xi Jinping's himself either, individually as the chairman of the party, the leader of the country, um, to take this on and perhaps uh, run into a debacle. That would really be bad for him personally, the Chinese Communist Party, the Central Committee, and, and so forth. Um, and we need to make that um, so obviously bad as an alternative that the status quo is kind of maintained. It's kind of just like the Cold War repeat. I mean, if you know, we now know, we can look back and look at how the Cold War ended now that it's you know sufficiently in the sufficiently far enough in the rearview mirror. But I mean, I can only imagine at the time say if this was just 50 years ago, I'd probably be sitting here and saying, like, we can't just keep kicking the can down the road. Korea, Vietnam, we're just posturing, Cuban Missile Crisis. But eventually that is what worked, was you just kept kicking the can down the road, kept the fists up until finally one of them collapsed. You know, Well, well I mean, th th there was more to it than that, although that oh, was yeah. part of it, yeah. But when Ronald Reagan came along, you know, as U.S. president in 1980 until 88, uh, two-term president, um, he made it his number one mission Spend a minute to collapse the Soviet Union. And he did this um, in terms of military technology buildup that the Russians could not match. He did it in terms of economics because he knew that, that internally the Russian economy um, could not match um, the dynamo, the dynamism of, of the American free, economy. Free market. And then, and then of course, third was uh, the war in Afghanistan, uh, where we, for better or for worse, um, you know, stepped in and uh, supported the Mujahideen, uh, who are now the Taliban, but in any case, I guess the point is that things don't stay the same. Mm -hmm. they, they don't remain static. And, and if you can um, affect uh, the direction some things go, whether it be diplomatically, economically, financially, um, you know, militarily, technolo technology, if you can affect those things while maintaining this sort yeah. of status quo, over time, the accumulation of, of those changes uh, can build in the direction that we're trying to go. I, th I think that's what, which is such a, a 
such a BS out on my part. Like, oh, no, that's what I meant to say. But I think that's what I meant to say is like the big picture is is fists are up and we're kind of in luck. And then it's but then you can kind of go do stuff on the sides and try to dissolve it from within. Now, are we going to be able to do that? I mean, it all comes down to which way does that go now? Do we lock in with China right now? Do we do we lock in? If if China is still rising, are they going to bide their time or are they a paper tiger? And do we have to bide our time? And in maybe 10, 20, 30 years, yeah. it's just a repeat of Reagan. Do we have some guy come along, spend him into the dirt and plow China down? Well, a very good point. Um, and here I'm going to cite um, a good friend and, and someone whose um, brilliance and analysis um, and, and knowledge of these affairs I rely on a lot. And that is David Goldman. David Goldman, senior editor at Asia Times, um, for many, many years, published columns there under the pseudonym Spengler, uh, taking off from the philosopher Oswaldo Spengler, um, still writes under that that pseudonym, uh, but is now out, if you will, as David Goldman, who is um, primarily a banking and finance expert, um, but also brilliant on things like uh, demographics. Uh, of China um, and, and and many other things. And, and his main point, and he wrote a book that I, I would recommend to people from, uh, I think it was 2019, it probably came out, and it was called You Will Be Assimilated, uh, taking off from Star Trek, right? The Borg, Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated. <laughs> and that's the title of his book, You Will Be Assimilated, and he's talking about China. So in the interim, just as you say, Tommy, in the meantime here, we do have a very serious challenge on our hands, um, and it has to do with China's all-out drive for advanced technology in areas like semiconductor chips, uh, the, the technologies, plural, that go into 5G, um, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, any number of things, um, hypersonic uh, technology, hologram technology, I could go on and on, uh, quantum computing, all of these things. and. You know, they're graduating. This is David's point. They're graduating. I don't know what it is, 10 million engineers per year uh, out of Chinese um, universities. And we're graduating a bunch of, um, you know, gender Gender studies studies. and and what have you, you know, with buns in their hair. Um, This is just, you know, this isn't going to work. In in the interim, if you think of this, you know, as a window, as you've just put it rightly, if you think about this as a window that kind of closing, um, maybe for them and for us, um, you know, we need to, 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 to get, get on the ball here and um, take our educational system seriously uh, and really ramp up in STEM uh, subjects from, uh, I mean, from grade school on up through high school, undergrad, graduate, et cetera, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, of course. And, you know, get rid of this uh, critical race theory, ethnic studies crap, which is polluting the minds of generations of children, never mind that they've been kept out of school for the last couple of years. China didn't do that. China doesn't do any of that. The kids are in school uh, every day, um, a whole lot more hours than our kids are. And uh, they're not studying underwater basket weaving. They are graduating engineers. So that's David Goldman's point, and I would, I would, I would reiterate it. Uh, we have got to get serious about catching up 
uh, on certain technological um, areas that, that we have let slip. Maybe our maybe our greatest export could be maybe we start exporting critical race theory to China. Maybe we start exporting. Well, where do we think it came from in the I first know, place? I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, maybe I think maybe we need to start exporting. Send it yeah, back, get basket, wrapped. Yeah. yeah, I think we need to start exporting basket weaving. I think we need to start exporting our culture. Start, you know, getting them to dye their well, hair. You know what? That, I know you're, you're you've got a certain time limit today, but that's a topic for a whole other podcast, maybe. And that is that how. Um, after the death of Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai in 1976, they both died that year, and the rise over the next two, three years of Deng Xiaoping, who ushered in um, uh, revisions to, to, to Communist Party policy um, that, that incorporated and, and even welcomed certain elements of capitalism uh, in order to uh, revive the, the Chinese economy and society after 10 years of devastation under the Cultural Revolution, that capitalism uh, took hold. And uh, in a lawless society like, like China's, um, uh, corruption followed massively. And there was an elite class within uh, the upper ranks of the Chinese Communist Party, China, um, you know, that, that, that has gotten used to um, being rich, uh, doing whatever they want, flouting the laws such as they be, um, flouting, uh, you know, the rule of the Chinese Communist Party whenever it suits them. And so um, uh, even regular, ordinary people, Chinese, um, you know, have, have looked now more and more to a, a capitalist system as a way to advance their own lives, you know, to, 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 uh, you know, to get ahead as, as ordinary people. Uh, and of course now Xi Jinping is, 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 uh, alarmed. I guess some other members of the, the, the central committee probably are too with how the, um, I guess as they would look at it, well, maybe we should too, uh, the moral drawbacks of unfettered capitalism are corroding not just the communist ideal in China, but the society as a whole. And, and uh, that's to be encouraged, in my mind, from, from our point of view. And we can talk about that some more another time. That will definitely be the next episode, because unfortunately, I do got to wrap this one up. But that would be that's a beautiful cliffhanger. That's what we'll pick up next, uh, next Thursday. The great Claire Lopez. I'll put all the links to all of your writings, your Twitters, all that good stuff. I'll put it in the description. As always, go follow Claire, follow her readings, follow her readings, go read her writings. I'm having a stroke, apparently. And um, thank you so much, Miss Lopez. Thank you, Tommy. It's great to see you again. Thank Happy you. New Year, everybody. Thank you very much. God bless everyone. Stay safe. Take care. Recording Until stopped. next week, Claire. Goodbye.